I feel so fortunate to do what I get to do. It's about the law. It's about people and, you know, bringing my perspectives to decision-making so we can make better, we can have better decisions on our panels. Uh, my colleagues bring, you know, their diverse experiences to the court and their worldview and their values. And of course we apply the law to the cases, but there's gray area in the law and um, to raise questions that maybe wouldn't have been raised before. And then also just, I think a role model to, to folks that, you know, this is what civil discourse looks like. everyone, this is Sandra Munoz, and we're back with another episode of Law & Order Me Some Tacos. You know, when I'm thinking about who to invite onto the podcast, one of the factors that I consider is that person's perspective or insight into the legal system. And today's guest certainly has a very unique perspective. Today's guest is Associate Justice Arnaldo Baltodano, who is a judge on the California Court of Appeal. There are not a lot of appellate judges in California and even fewer Latino appellate judges. So I was really happy when Arnaldo said yes, because I wanted to talk to him about his experience. And I also wanted to talk to him about his journey getting to the California Court of Appeal. The other reason that I wanted to have Arnaldo on is because he really is a great guy. I first met Arnaldo when we were both associate attorneys at the law firm of Hatzel and Stormer back in the early 2000s. And actually, I was reminded after we spoke that we used to go to the Key Taco in Pasadena all the time for lunch. And so, you know, he's a good guy. He likes Key Taco. <laughs> but from day one, I also knew that Arnaldo was exceptionally hardworking. He was super smart and just generally a really good guy. We later worked together again when he had his own office and I had my own office and we co-counseled a couple of cases. And then we've just always stayed in touch. And I was super happy when I learned last year that he had been appointed by Governor Newsom to the California Court of Appeal. So I totally wanted to have him on the podcast. And I think you're really going to learn a lot about what it is to become a judge and you're gonna learn a lot about what it is to be a judge. I'm grateful that he came on, and as always, I'm super grateful that all of you have tuned in. So thanks a lot, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Here's Arnaldo. All right, welcome everyone. Arnaldo, I should have asked you this before we got started, but I'm gonna ask you now. So you are Justice Arnaldo Baltodano? Sandra, good morning. It's so wonderful to be here with you. I'm honored. I do listen to your podcast. Yes, I am an Associate Justice on the 2nd District Court of Appeal in Division 6, which sits in Ventura. And the appropriate title is Justice as opposed to Judge, correct? I, I'm a judge, but the title on my business card says Associate Justice. Can I call you Arnaldo during the podcast? Absolutely, yes. You can call me Arnaldo. That Arnaldo has enough vowels already, and it's long enough, so let's go with that. But let me, let me start you with the question that I always ask everybody. Where are you from? Where am I from? I was born in Managua, Nicaragua, the capital city. But I mean, that's where I was born, but I very much feel like I'm from, from California. Yeah. So you came to the United States at what age? I was 15 months old. Oh, okay. So you, I mean, <laughs> yes, I think you are. It's fair to say you're a Californian. <laughs> yes. And can you tell me a little bit about the circumstances that brought you and your family to the United States? Yes. It's, um, you know, it's a story that 
many Californians share. I, as I said, I, I was born in Managua, came here as an infant. My family was fleeing what was soon going to be a civil war mm. in Nicaragua. And um, my parents kind of saw the writing on the walls. And my mom had come to the United States a few years before. We came here in December of 1977. She'd come to visit her sister, 1972, 1973. And she came here. She saw. She saw this as a you know land of opportunity. She wanted to give her children a, a better life. So she convinced my father to to leave Managua. That's where we lived, and to come to Los Angeles. And how many children were you? It was two of us at the time. My older sister, who I think was seven, and then like I said, I was fifteen months old, and uh, we boarded a plane to LAX. My parents were able to qualify for a tourist visa. So we came December 3rd of 1977. And I think they really did only intend to come here for a temporary period of time. But in January of 1978, a very prominent journalist was assassinated by the dictatorship. And I think my parents then decided, you know, we can't go back. And I think the the Sandinistas, that movement, the revolutionary movement started after that. Yeah. And so they decided to stay Yes, decided to stay in the U.S. in Los Angeles. What part of Los Angeles did you all live in? The Pico Union area. Oh, right on. And is that also where your mom's sister was? I think she was. She was. You know, I have a letter that my dad wrote to President Carter wanting permission to stay in the United States. And there's an address on that letter. Um, and I confirmed with my mom, you know, is this where we, we first lived in the United States? She said, yes. So I, I drove there to check it out. It was like a duplex and just kind of looking at it and driving around the neighborhood. Oh, wow. What was that like for you, Arnaldo? Oh, it was just humbling to know that I was, what I was going to be doing there, that I had gone to that point to interview for a position of being a superior court judge. And, you know, I was trying to think back to what it must have been like for my parents to live in that little duplex. and In a whole new world, right? Because it was a whole new world. whole new world, whole new language. I had a tia who lived in LA, but that was it. And my parents didn't have a lot of formal education. And it was very scary for them. Yeah, as it is for so many. I mean, it's I really truly believe it. It's the bravest of the people that come here. Yes, it must have taken so much courage. And there was something about the United States that was pulling my, my mother more so than my dad to come here. I just mentioned to you, Sandra, I, I was in New York for judicial training this past weekend. My spouse and one of our kids went went with me and we watched Hamilton. Oh, did you? I mean, you can't watch Hamilton and just think about, you know, how this country is formed by immigrants and just the greatness of this country in the pool that so many people from all across the world want to come here. And my mom and my dad, who were born in a very little rural towns in Nicaragua, they didn't think about going to Spain or, you know, it was something about the United States, something about California and about Los Angeles that pulled them. And it's just fascinating. Well, I think that whole concept of the American dream and having nothing and getting somewhere in the United States has always been a theme that is worldwide, I suppose. Even to this day when, you know, there's so much backlash against immigrants. But anyway, let me ask you, Arnaldo, what did your parents do when they got here? Like, I mean, obviously, I'm sure they found jobs, but what is it that they did? Both my parents had like second or third grade educations. We, we moved into an area that there was a big immigrant community. They befriended a Guatemalan family who we're still friends with to this day. And they helped my parents get, you know, factory jobs. I don't know exactly where in downtown, maybe near, maybe in the garment district. That's what they did. And they would work 12, 16 hours a day. Yeah. The Cruz family, uh, they had been in the United States, I think for a few years. And I mean, they became like family. So they helped my parents get jobs. They helped my parents secure childcare for my older sister and myself. And I know it was a very scary time for my parents because our tourist visas had expired and um, they were concerned about 
us being deported because we didn't have legal status and we hadn't applied for political asylum yet. That came later. You overstayed your visa. Essentially, were undocumented. Yes. Yeah. Did you go to public school? Yes. So we lived in L.A., Till I was about five or so. And then we moved to the Bay Area. My dad was always chasing jobs and, you know, an opportunity just to be able to make a living. And we moved up to Newark, California, which is like near Fremont. So East Bay, you know, I don't remember if I went to kindergarten. I definitely didn't go to preschool. Yeah. But I remember first grade and I remember not speaking English. And well, we didn't speak English at home because my parents didn't speak English. Yeah. And Yeah. So public schools, I went to a lot of public schools. We moved around a lot. My parent, my dad was always trying to find a higher paying job. I mean, both my parents were low wage workers throughout their working lives in the United States. So yeah, I mean, I bounced around public schools a lot. I ended up at a freshman year. We were living at that time in Hayward and I attended for like about a quarter Tennyson High School. And it was, it was a rough area. My parents were like, you know, we need to, we need to move to maybe a, a better neighborhood and where the schools might be better. So we moved to Fremont. Back then it was the end of the BART line. And I attended Irvington High School in Fremont, public school. And I'm proud to say I attended a you know public university and then public law school as well. So you really grew up in, in Northern California. I did. Yeah. It's funny you say that because your parents, you know, had working class jobs, right? I always look back at because my mom did too. My mom worked at Sears. Well, she worked, had a lot of jobs, but her last job was at Sears. I mean, she wasn't making a lot of money, but somehow she was able to to make it. I don't know. I, I still don't understand how. Like, you know, and, and bought a house and, you know, supported a family of like four kids, brought my cousins over from Mexico. It's just, and it was just her because she wasn't, my dad had passed away when I was 10 years old. So I know it's always amazing to me when I look at myself because I'm a spender, shamelessly a spender. I'm always amazed at what my mom specifically was able to do with her working class just slightly above minimum wage job, you know, it's pretty amazing. I don't know how my parents did it. I, you know, I didn't know what I didn't, what I was missing, or I didn't know what a middle-class lifestyle was or upper middle-class lifestyle. Yeah. I never went to bed hungry. I always, you know, every time beginning of the school year, my, my mom would take my younger sister and I, she's about a year and a half younger than me. We would go shopping for the beginning of the school year. And we'd always get like, like five shirts, two pairs of pants and two pairs of shoes. And that was it. You know, until like Christmas and I'd get like other basics, like, you know, more socks and underwear and some more shirts and things like that. But I wasn't getting toys and I didn't, you know, that was, I mean, my, both my parents worked, they worked a lot. I was a latchkey kid, probably at the age of five. And I, as far as I knew, I had everything that I needed, you know? I remember that too, because my mom always worked as well. So, I mean, it's not like people were picking me up from school at the end of the day and taking me home. Like I just walked home and like nobody was there. I was just like, you know, not when I, when I was real little, but like, as I got older, it was just, you know, that's what you did. You, you walked to school, walked home, came home and, you know, made do until your older siblings got home or your mom got home. Right. And I remember getting up early with my parents because they had to take public transportation to get to work. You know, getting to work was like, like a two hour ordeal at the beginning before they got a car and I would be up uh, because I needed to get ready and I needed help get my sister situated. Yeah. And then I would walk home to school, walk my sister to school. Then I'd walk to school. Uh, Sometimes that involved me having out outrun dogs and things that would chase me. (laughs) Had a phobia of dogs for, uh, yeah, being chased. I never got bit by a dog. And then after school, you know, I'd I'd walk to my sister's school and pick her up and then we would walk home and I had keys to the apartment and I'd I'd make ourselves a snack and watch a little bit TV and then do homework and then my parents would get home and yeah, that's what the routine was. Yeah. Where did you go to undergrad? 
I went to undergrad at uh, UC Davis, but I did spend a year at UC Riverside my freshman year, and then I transferred to UC Davis after a year. And so, and then you went to law school. I went to law school after that. Yeah. Where did you go to law school? I went to law school at UC Berkeley. At UC Berkeley. Oh, fancy. Well, you know, it's all relative, but fancy to me. It felt fancy to me too. Actually, it's fancy. Yes. And Arnaldo, tell me, did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? What led you to law? No, I never thought about being a lawyer as a kid or even in high school or even most of college. I decided to apply to law school when I was studying abroad in Costa Rica through the Education Abroad Program. I majored in sociology, minored in political science, and I really loved it. And I thought I would go to graduate school and get a PhD in sociology and be a professor and do research in the social sciences. But I was studying abroad in Costa Rica, and I had this thought that, you know, I want to live in Latin America or be close to Latin America, uh, maybe do something in business. And I thought, well, sociology is not, I don't think that's going to be very helpful. Uh, So I'm like, what are my options? Okay, business school, it's too much math. That's not an option, Ronaldo. And then I thought, well, how about law school? You know, law school may give me the opportunity to to do something in, in the international world, international business world. And I had talked to some students who were applying to law school and did a little bit of reading up on what it meant to get a law degree. And so I made the decision to apply. Yeah, when I was living in Costa Rica, I studied there for six months. Why was that? I mean, it's interesting to me that your goal or what you had in mind or what you envisioned was that you would live in Latin America. Why do you think that was? You know, I think it had to do with being a first generation immigrant and often feeling as a young child and throughout my adolescence. And then even as a young adult where I didn't feel like I totally fit in, I guess at the time didn't fully feel like I was fully American. I had gone to Central America. I'd gone back to Nicaragua, you know, when I was 19. And then I think maybe 22. And I I really enjoyed that. And I didn't feel, obviously didn't fit in there because I was, I mean, I was foreign to the folks that lived there, my family members, because of the way I spoke my Spanish, the way that I dressed, my body language. So I thought, you know, maybe I could have the best of both worlds and just experience both. And I think that's what I was yearning for at the time. Yeah. And so you went to law school and you went to Berkeley. And what was that like for you? What was the law school experience like for you? Oh my gosh, it was so difficult. Was it? Uh, Especially the first year. Well, it was hard. The subject matter was hard, but I felt like I didn't, like, do I belong here? I don't know if I can, if I'm cut out for this. And then, especially the first year, and I had to take, you know, all the required classes, right? Contracts, torts, real property, civil procedure. And it was like a completely foreign language. I didn't find it like relevant to my life. And the, the concepts were just so foreign. And then once I was able to take some electives and I was able to make some friendships with folks that we shared similar values and kind of had some similar life experiences. And we, I guess you could call it back then, we didn't call it imposter syndrome, but they also felt like I don't really belong here. I'm not smart enough to be here. That just kind of developed a kinship and we wanted to help each other out. And so that made the the second and third years much more tolerable. I met my spouse in law school as well. She was in the same small section as me. And you know that was very helpful. Just these friendships and relationships helping me get through. And then I, and then I was able to do some clinic work and helping folks that were trying to get political asylum here. And I would argue cases in front of like an immigration board in San Francisco. And that made the law a lot more just tangible and real for me. And it, it was personal for me. And that helped me as well. Well, how did your parents feel about you going to law school? I think, you know, I, I probably told them, you know, I, I think I want to be a lawyer. And I think they knew what it meant to be an abogado, that it was a, a respected profession. 
So I think they were supportive, but they didn't, again, they were just said, you know, they just do what you think is best. We trust you. We support you. And that was it. It was just like, you want to be a lawyer? That's great. Right. No, I understand that. Yeah. I mean, it was much the same for me. My mom understood what being a lawyer meant and that it was something good and prestigious. But yeah, she couldn't help me with like, oh, should I go to Loyola or should I go to USC or, you know, where should I apply? I mean, she wasn't going to be able to help me with any of that. And even when I was in law school, she knew I was taking exams and she knew I was studying around the clock. I mean, so like she could help me or give me tips. But she always was like, okay, echale ganas. You know, that's always her thing. Echale ganas. And she may not understand what I'm doing, but she always, always wanted me to to do it. You know, I totally understand what you're saying. And I, you're making me think about when I was, when I was a kid, elementary school, then junior high. And okay, my parents, they, you know, they couldn't help me with my homework, but they knew what it meant to, to get an A. And like, if I got straight A's, my prize would be, I could like pick a video game. And my mom would, that was like $50. And I, I would go be able to pick a video game. And so they try to incentivize me. And then when I got to college, I mean, I would tell them I have a big exams and they would, I would share with them what my grades were and they would, they were supportive. They would drive from the East Bay and, and bring me trays of gallo pinto, which is a Nicaraguan dish, rice and beans. Oh, really? Yeah. They would take me grocery shopping and I don't know how they made, how they figure that out. Cause I know it was a hardship for them to, to figure out paying for gas and then they take me grocery shopping. But that was their way of saying, you know, we believe in you. We support you. You do your best. And that was so significant for me. And you have folks just believing in you. Oh, it's, it's invaluable. Like, you know, somebody who always supports you and cheerleads you and, you know, has just encouraged you and believes you can do anything when you can't, when you don't believe it, you know, it's, it's invaluable. Like, you know, it's great. I will say though, throughout many points in my studies and my career, I have felt imposter syndrome. And I think my parents would have been like, what do you mean you can't? What do you mean you feel like you don't belong? You've, you're, you know, you're where you are because you've earned it and you've worked really hard. And maybe I needed to hear that more from them, <laughs> you know, if they, because <laughs> they never made me feel like you can't do that or it would have been foreign to them, the concept of that. Yeah. I, I mean, they believe so much in the greatness of this country and having opportunities here, no matter, you know, where you were born, what you look like, if you have an accent or in some ways naive that they, you know, that it was, it was great. Because they made me feel that. And, and I don't mean any offense to your to your parents. I just like, I don't know that my mom or, or your parents can even really ever imagine what it's like to do, well, at least for me to be in a courtroom or to be in front of a judge or to be in a room where you're like no one else or to be even like I've argued in front of the court of appeal. I don't know that they understand what that feels like, you know, and for somebody who comes from our types of backgrounds, right? Like yeah. it is sometimes daunting, I think for me. I got a couple of stories that if you don't mind me sharing about, about that, about, you know, being at the court of appeal, arguing the case and then. Don't lose that train of thought. Cause I do want to make sure. Um, and so you listen to appeals from the trial courts. So yeah, our judiciary is comprised of three levels in California. We have the superior courts that are trial courts. And then we have appellate courts. We have they're divided in six districts across California, and I'm in the second district. The second district actually covers all of Los Angeles County and then three other counties. Oh, you're in the second district? I'm in the second district. And then the, the second district is divided in eight divisions. And each division has four justices. I sit in division six, which handles appeals from LA County, which is massive. I, we were talking about how there's like 600 judges in LA. I mean, it's the biggest court system in the United States. And then we hear appeals. We review appeals from San Luis Obispo, Ventura, and Santa Barbara County. So those four counties. And so, yeah, I review cases involving folks who 
aren't happy with what happened at the trial court. They think that the judge got made an error. And so as an appellate justice, I review those cases to see if if the trial judge followed the law and if there was error, whether the error was harmless or not. I don't, you know, unlike a trial court where the judge is hearing testimony, receiving evidence, weighing credibility, seeing people, you know, in a criminal department, for example, you know, engaging with the defendants and with alleged victims of crime with lawyers every day. I don't do that. You know, I don't, I review a record of, of everything that happened at the court below. Hopefully the record is pretty fulsome and I have enough, but I review that and I read briefs that the parties file with the court where they're arguing why, you know, the judge got it wrong, essentially. So for example, not to make this about me, I will admit that this week I lost a summary judgment motion at the trial court where I filed the lawsuit. I plan to appeal because I think the judge got it wrong. So I will file an appeal and go to the court of appeal, which is where you sit. Yes. So then at the court of appeal, I would review the tra- the record of that case, whatever the, with the lawyers include as part of the record, the briefs that would be filed. Not in your case. I don't think I could <laughs> handle it in your case in sound generally. <laughs> and then there would be oral argument. And a big difference between the court of appeal and trial court is I'm not the only judge on a case. So there are three judges assigned to each case. So I sit on a panel of three and we have oral argument. After oral argument, we have generally 90 days to issue a written opinion as to whether we're going to affirm what the trial court did, reverse or a combination of both. And and so that's what I do. And then above us is the California Supreme Court. And there are seven of those justices. Right, right. And that is the court system in a nutshell in the state of California. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I interrupted you. I hope you didn't forget the story that you wanted to tell me. Well, you were mentioning about your mom, you know, having an idea of what you did as a lawyer. I would say she didn't understand what it meant to be in court or to argue in front of a judge. Right. So I remember one of the first assignments I got actually at the firm that you and I worked at had some stormer. It was the first assignment I got actually. It was January like 2nd was to write an appellate brief on a case. And yeah, it was really intimidating. So I I wrote the opening brief. I must have written the reply brief too. I I don't remember that specifically, but then I had to go argue it. In Division 6, where I sit now, and I remember my dad was visiting Erica, my wife Erica and I, he'd come down from the Bay Area and he went to go watch me argue. And uh, I remember he was really intimidated because it was like a real fancy building and going through security. It was like going through an airport, you know, security. And, you know, they had like bailiffs there. There's actually now I know there were CHP officers, but, you know, he had, he always carried a lot of change coins in his pants. And so he kept the the alarm kept going off and lawyers were getting annoyed that we're going to go argue their cases because he had to keep going in and out, you know, of the little security check. And then finally we we got into the courtroom. It's crazy because I never would have thought ever that I'd be sitting up there as one of the, you know, all the justices sit up there. And I remember when our case, my case was called and I argued. And I think the reason why the law firm had me argue this case was, you know, as a first year attorney was because it was a, a loser. <laughs> they wanted me to get the experience. And I mean, that's how you got experience at Hatso and started. How do you do things straight up? It was not easy. And, uh, you know, they, the justices asked me a lot of tough questions. I didn't, I was brand new. But I remember when I stood up at the podium, during our argument, and then I turned, and then when I was done turning around and looking at my dad, and he was, you know, he looked really proud, and he whispered to me, he's like, oh, you know, oh, that was, you know, excellent, you know, you did a great job, but he didn't even know what we were talking about. Again, this is a man who had like a third grade education, but even then, he made me feel like, just knowing that he was so proud of me, but uh, yeah, he didn't know what I was doing, so I, you made me think, of, uh, remember that, which is really significant to me, just because I, you know, 20, what, 20, that was in 2004, that less than 20 years later, I'd be up there 
as an appellate justice. It just speaks to the the greatness of California and our country and opportunities. Well, also a little bit of greatness of you, Arnaldo, because you did the work. Well, I mean, accept it, Arnaldo, accept it. I just was trying to do my best and doing the right thing. I never, not something that I ever thought I'd be, that I thought I'd want to do, or being a judge or on the court of appeal. Then I think about when my mom came to San Luis Obispo to see me on the bench when I was a trial court judge. Yeah. And in a criminal department. And again, she didn't, you know, it was all in English, except for cases where we had an interpreter, maybe the defendant was Spanish speaking, but she has no knowledge of criminal law or criminal procedure. And she watched like my, you know, whole calendar in the morning and you know, we had lunch, we reconvened during lunch. And she was like, mijo, she's like, I could tell that in Espanol, she said it like, que, que, you know, and the way that they looked at you, it just, you could tell that they respected you and the way that you would treat them, the way that you talk to them. And it was neat. So she didn't know anything about the law, anything substantively, but she walked away, which is so important for judges is, you know, making litigants feel seen and heard. And my mom got that just from watching the way I ran my calendar. And that was, that made me feel good. But uh, that was really neat. And now what I do is so far removed from that because I don't see the litigants for the most part. Sometimes we have cases involving pro pers, folks who are representing themselves, but it's very different from what I do now. Yeah. These stories of your dad seeing you argue and your mom seeing you as a judge, like in the courtroom, I just think that's so like, that's just must have been so amazing for them, you know, but also for you, because to be able to have to see your parents see you is, is, it's pretty impressive. I, I don't think about it often. I, I yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, I'm sometimes struck by, um, you know, I grew up in communities where there was a lot of distrust of law enforcement and my dad was very intimidated by law enforcement. And he never had the opportunity to see me in a courtroom, but he would have just, and he passed away, it'll be two years in August, but he, it would have blown away and blown his mind away if he saw me in a courtroom with like CHP officers, you know, or bailiffs in the courtroom that were there to protect me, right. his son. I mean, he, it would have, oh my gosh, but it's remarkable really. And yeah, if you really think about it, if you really sit down and think about your dad and your mom who were in Nicaragua in the 70s making this decision to come here and that journey and the journey that was their lives and raising you. And then you end up on the California Court of Appeal. Like, I just want to cry right now. You know, that is a lot. You know, it's a lot. And who knows where your career is going to take you even after this, you know? Well, I'm getting chills right now just thinking about it because it's not something I think about because you, you just want to do your best. Yeah, you just want to do your best, cause yeah. And I, th- I think about, um, gosh, Sandra, you're making me <laughs> get emotional. No, I understand. Your parents made all these sacrifices, and and you, you know, because let me tell you this, Ronaldo, I don't, I'm not easily impressed. You know, the fact that you were a judge. Well, let me start with this. The fact that, because I honestly believe this, and I, I'm really not trying to like kiss up to you, Ronaldo, because that's not what I do. But I honestly think you're like one of the kindest persons I've ever known, one of the kindest attorneys I've ever known, like just a good guy, you know, like Thank just you. a good person. And so to see you have gone to the Superior Court, I was like, yes, great person to have on the bench. Because often you don't have good, I mean, I, I know you, you know, I'm not going to try to like <laughs> disrespect your colleagues. I'm just saying there's some people on the bench who are, you know, not necessarily good. And then to see you go up to the Court of Appeal, it's really impressive, Arnaldo. So I tell you this from someone who met you when you were just getting started. I'm really proud of you. I'm really proud of the fact that you're on the Court of Appeal. So there, there. I'm going to stop now because that's a lot. That's a lot of being nice for me. I'm very touched. As I'm listening to you, I, I was kind of fortunate. A lot of that is opportunity and timing. And I, I got the opportunity to working at the firm that you were at at the time when I got hired to have some stormer to work with 
with wonderful attorneys. I had that opportunity to work at a firm like that. They didn't just hire anyone. And no, and let me tell you about your hiring because at the time when you got hired at Hatzel and Storm, I was an associate at Hatzel and Storm, but I've been there a few years and I was the only Spanish speaking attorney. And we were working on several cases that had mostly like class actions that had mostly Spanish speaking plaintiffs. When the firm was hiring, I I mean, I'm not saying that I had this kind of power. I didn't, but I really did want them to hire another Spanish speaker because I was the only one and it was a lot of work for me. And so we made an effort to find a qualified, good Spanish speaking attorney to hire. And I mean, I, I did a lot of that searching. I had no idea. You did it? No, no. But that speaks to, you know, having folks in spaces where they can exert, you know, some influence in the hiring process or what we're looking for and and how we view merit and someone who's qualified beyond, you know, grades and where you went to law school, whether you're on law review, being culturally competent, being able to speak the language. And then even on the Court of Appeal with Gavin Newsom, you know, looking at his appointment, his whole staff, uh, Luis Cespedes, Gonzalo Martinez, who's now on the Court of Appeal, but looking at what qualities, what values, what skills do these individuals bring to the court that are going to, you know, increase our confidence in the, in the judiciary and help resolve these human problems. Because the law, you know, we have complicated statutes, we have the Constitution, you have lawyers arguing, you, it's complicated. But at the end of the day, Sandra, it's about people and the way that we govern ourselves through a Constitution and through the laws, how those laws are interpreted. And you know, I've just been a beneficiary of all of that. Right. But you've also worked really hard because, well, I completely agree with you that when you're looking for to fill a position or to appoint someone, like you just need to look at the broad picture, like the whole thing, as opposed to just like this limited, did you go to an Ivy League school? You know, were you top of the class? I wasn't any of those things, but I do truly believe that I'm a good attorney and I bring to the legal system qualities that are very valuable because of who I am and where I come from. And I think that's true, not just people of color, but of a lot of people who have had diverse experiences. So let me, let's go back before you got to the bench, right? So you started at the Superior Court where you were appointed by Jerry Brown? By Jerry Brown. Um, and you started in San Luis Obispo, right? In the Superior Court? I did. And how, how far out of law school were you when you got started, when you were appointed initially? I was 15 years out of law school. I was assigned initially to a criminal courtroom there, and I knew nothing, I mean, about criminal law other than studying what I remember from the bar exam, which is like nothing, you know, I mean, and criminal procedure, California criminal procedure, and the jargon and the culture. So did you just learn it all on the on the job or did you go to, did, do they, I always want to know, did, is there a judge school? So when I applied to be a Superior Court judge, and it's it's an extensive process to, if you're going to be appointed by the governor, but I, I, I wanted to be ready. If it happened, I wanted to, to know something. So I would go watch criminal proceedings at the San Luis Obispo County Superior Courthouse. And I started reading criminal law treatises. And again, I, you know, it was possible I wasn't going to get appointed, but just in case. And I was also very curious about criminal law. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of fun. And then once I got appointed, uh, I mean, there's no training. I mean, I, they had me watch different calendars for like four days. I remember. And then Friday, it was like the first time I was going to take the bench. And sat in a courtroom for four days and then you were and then you got your, your yeah, I was just watching hearings. And then Friday I had my first criminal calendar. And I remember I had a, um, there was a, a criminal judge who, you know, she had me rehearse, like practice taking a plea and I didn't do too well. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is not going to go well in her office. 
Oh my gosh. It was almost embarrassing. And then I remember putting on the robe and I was in the hallway and it was going to be like, you know, the bailiff, I remember him, him asking me, so, you know, your honor, are you, and even people referring you to that way as your honor, it was bizarre. He's like, you're ready. You're ready. You're ready to do this. I said, I, I guess so. And walking to the courtroom and, you know, all rise and this is before COVID. So, you know, packed courtroom with people, there, lawyers, their clients in custody, out of custody. So you, you learn as you go, you know, you read, you read the briefs, you prepare, you read the, you know, the reports. I mean, if you're prepared, they'll cut you some slack and you learn and you just, I had no choice. You know, I wanted to do the best that I could. Yeah. No, yeah, you had to you had to do it. But obviously, it sounds like you did a lot to just make sure you were as prepared as you could be, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I filled a, a spot at the trial court that the, the term was going to expire the following year. So it meant that under the Constitution, an attorney can also fill a superior court position. So I got challenged within two months of, of taking the bench. And I, I had an election a countywide election in June of 2018, you know, and I took, I started at the trial court December of 2017. So you got appointed midterm, like in the middle of a term by Governor Brown, but when that term came up, somebody challenged you. Yes, essentially, yes. You had to run an election because you can either get appointed to the bench or you can run in an election for the bench when that seat is up for election, correct? Yes. Or if there's like a, if there's a vacancy that has not been filled by the governor, Right. Um, you can also run for that open seat. So long as you've been a lawyer for 10 years. Yeah. So I was running an election and learning criminal law and procedure and learning how to be a judge at the same time. I had a, a full plate for sure. Were you expecting that? Were you expecting somebody to run against you? No way. Yeah. It's not most judges when their terms come up run in an election. It's like when you're voting and you have all those judge positions and nobody ever knows who the heck to vote for. Most judges run who are already on the bench run unopposed. unopposed. Yes, they run unopposed. Their name's not even on the ballot because if nobody files papers, no one indicates that they're going to challenge you and they file papers with the county clerk's office, you run unopposed. No one has to vote for you. You, You're going to start a new term automatically. And a term for a Superior Court judge is six years. Six years. So, okay. And then if somebody happens to throw their hat, their name in the hat? Yeah. 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 If they challenge you and yeah, their name is on the ballot. It, it's a full on election. It's a full on contest. Wow. And you had to do that. So soon after you got appointed by Brown. Oh, man. I mean, I don't remember you running, but I didn't realize. I mean, you know, I didn't realize the timing of it. Yeah. I had to run a countywide campaign. I had a campaign manager, my spouse. Fortunately, she she stepped up for me, did that. I, I had a campaign committee. I had to raise money. Oh, I man. had to social media. I had to do debates. I had to, I did, you know, radio interviews. It felt like being a politician, but you can't talk politics or talk about how, would rule, how you would rule on a certain issue. It definitely, it was, it was challenging insofar as also as a new judge, wanting to maintain my independence as a judge and preserving the integrity of the judiciary and what I do. And do I necessarily want to raise money from the lawyers that are appearing in front of me and taking donations? I can, should I? And, you know, I couldn't run a campaign. I couldn't do anything related to the campaign during during work hours. I can't use public resources to run my campaign. Even like the telephone, right? Like you couldn't. Correct. Yeah. So, or like in my email. Email, yeah. It, it was stressful, but it was a, I would say a wonderful experience. I learned a lot about myself, about my community. About your wife. Yes. No, and we should name your wife, Erica. Yes. Erica Flores Valdolano. Yeah. Who's running her own campaign right now, isn't she? She's going to be running for uh, an office next year. And she's also 
a uh, she's very involved in the community and dean of our local law school and involved in a lot of volunteer work. Shout out to Erica. Yes, she's a force of nature for sure. Yeah, she really is. She's amazing. Okay, so and, and, I mean, obviously you won your election, so that's good. Yes. And did you have to run again or was it a six-year term in 2018? My term, so I ended up I ended up applying to the Court of Appeal. I was encouraged to do so. Like I throughout my life, you know, hey, I think you would, have you, have you considered this, doing this? Because I think you'd be good. And so I, I applied when I heard that from enough people and decided, you know, what the heck, I'll, I'll do it. I may not have this opportunity. And I, I got elevated to the Court of Appeal before my trial court term expired. I had a confirmation hearing. It was last August, August 3rd. The term that I was feeling for my predecessor who retired because it was expiring January of 2023. And because of the timing of when I took the bench, I was going to be on the ballot again. You know, your appointments. Yeah, that's my MO. But the big difference this time is for Court of Appeal, people don't run against you. Yeah. You have a retention election instead where the voters, they are just asked, you know, this person continue serving as a appellate justice for the term prescribed by law. And it's, it's a yes or no. And all you got to do is get a majority of people saying yes. And uh, so my name was on the ballot November of last year, and uh, I was retained by the voters, fortunately. So now I started my term this year. I'm in year one of my of my term. Okay, wow, that's that's so interesting. And so every is it also a six year term? Did you say that for appellate judges, the term is twelve years. Oh, good. I mean, you know, good for you. So yeah, I think the what's in the Constitution. There's a wanting to strike a balance between. You know, you don't want to give folks a lifetime appointment. They should be accountable to the voters. Right. Um, versus, you know, you also don't want, you want judges to be independent and not worry about, not having to worry about, okay, if I make an unpopular decision, am I going to have to, am I going to lose my job over this? So we have a hybrid system in California. Let me ask you, Ronaldo, because I, you know, you're on the court of appeal and I know you understand that there's a lot of like respect for judges. There's a lot of like, pomp and circumstance. I don't know if that's the right term, but you know, the whole like your honor and like, you know, there's, there's a lot of respect that happens when an attorney puts on a robe and sits on that bench, you know, and as you go up, the respect becomes even more intense, I think. So if you're on the court of appeal, if you're on the Supreme Court, like it's just these places that are so, they're foreign even to attorneys, but they're, they're so foreign to like communities and people just people who aren't in the legal system. What has it been like for you in the court of appeal? Like on a, just on a practical day-to-day level, like what has it been like for you? You know, the culture of where in my division, division six, that's in Ventura, even with staff, the culture is more informal. Each justice has like a mini law firm, like a, they're really like mini law firms. We each have our own staff. And when I say staff, I refer to court attorneys and like a paralegal who's called a judicial assistant. And um, we refer to each and we refer to each other by first name. And it wasn't like that at, at the Superior Court. Having said that, at the clerk's office, I mean, there's still a lot of, you know, your honor. And, you know, we have, I mean, I'm pausing because it's it's almost embarrassing the kind of the way that we're treated as royalty. I mean, with CHP, by folks that are in the LA office, because that's where the second district is based out of. I mean, you are kind of put on a, on a pedestal. Yeah. I think I'm fortunate. I, I, I'm my division, my colleagues. I think are very down to earth. I'd like to think that as a lawyer, I was very civil and professional being, you know, like a judge hasn't, hasn't changed that. Like I'm entitled to more respect or you need to always agree with me because I'm an appellate justice. And with in my own chambers, I'm very collaborative with my staff. You know, I very much see us as, you know, we work, we are working on putting together the best product 
in this case and drafting this opinion and editing it, even though I signed my name on things. And I think having a contested election for four months in 2018, you know, I had to get out into the community and educate a diverse group of voters about what I what we do as judges. I'm a public servant. I'm a servant of the law. I am here to serve the public. I think just the way that my, my personality, I don't give off a vibe that I think I'm better than you or I'm smarter than you or I'm more important than you because I'm a judge. But let me just put it this way. You know, when I walk into, when I go to the grocery store or I go to, I walk into a restaurant, people aren't, then people aren't thinking this guy's a judge. Right. And I remember many times when I was a trial court judge, you know, during a jury trial, I walk out to meet, you know, to go do Wadir. And I was surprising people when they saw me. Like, you're the judge? <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, the lawyers are a lot more, you know, they're more, they're older than I am. I mean, it just. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I hope I've answered your question. I think you have. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I also tell you, um, as I get older and, and have more years in as a lawyer, more and more people that I know and that I've known for a long time are on the bench and have become judges. But I remember one of the first persons that I ever worked with was Fernando Olguin, who I think you know, yes, and who many years ago was appointed to the Central District of California, which is the federal trial court, um, and also very prestigious because it's federal court. But I remember soon after he got appointed, I was in the Spring Street Courthouse, the federal courthouse. I couldn't find the room where I needed to go. I, I was so lost. And I saw him down the hallway. I, I literally screamed. So like, oh, sh- oh, shit, I shouldn't be calling him that, you know, <laughs> be calling them Judge Ogin, but I was so relieved to see him and he was just so familiar to me, you know? So, you know, I was like, Fernando! <laughs> you know, one thing I've learned that I didn't know as a lawyer, I didn't understand or comprehend when I got to the trial court and then on the Court of Appeals that judges are, we're just, we're like everybody else. I know, I know, but it, it's easy to forget that, right? Because first you, you've got the robe and you've got the your honor and you've got the please stand. and But then also judges have so much power, you know, like so much power. They literally can make or break your case, you know? So there is all this kind of like, I don't know what the word is. Like you just have to respect that position because it really like they, judges have so much power. Yeah, yeah they do. I mean, we're you know, co-equal branch of the government. And, you know, how often, you know, so like in California, you have, you know, Governor Newsom and, and his administration, his staff, you have the state legislature, the assembly and the Senate, but how often do we, are we engaging with those folks? We're not. But with the judiciary, you know, folks, we engage with them. But even like, for example, like me trying to, but it's, it's this legal system is such a foreign place for people who are not in it, right? So like, for example, I don't mean to harbor on this, but I mean, I might be a little bitter. The MSJ motion that I lost this week, that the judge decided I didn't have enough evidence to to go to trial. I had to explain that to my client Mm -hmm. who wasn't at the hearing, who doesn't know who the judge is, who doesn't. I mean, it's really hard for me to explain that this one person has decided she doesn't have enough evidence to go to a trial, even try to explain that whole concept. And so it's easy, I think, for judges to be removed from the practicalness of what their decisions are, or there's just a step removed from from the community, from the people who are actually in these lawsuits that, you know, is hard. I can't speak, obviously, for all judges. I I met a lot uh, throughout since I've been on the bench. And, you know, I think everyone is trying to do the rest. Being a trial judge is, is incredibly hard. I know. Oh, so hard. And there's so much volume. But I knew 
I knew what that meant if I was going to grant a motion for summary judgment. And for me, anyways, I always, I, it really mattered to me. And I spent a lot of time and I appreciated the significance of, of what that meant if I was going to grant it. You know, it was easier in a criminal department maybe to appreciate that because you have to make a ruling right then and there. And I, I remember for me, I knew what that that decision was so significant on that person personally, on their family members, whether, you know, what it meant for their case. But you have somebody that you can see. Yes. You're in the courtroom and you need to look them in the eye. And you're, I mean, you're going to, you decide whether someone's going to, you're going to deprive them of their liberty. And that was a, yeah, I mean, that was a so significant. I mean, and I did that for almost four years. It's a really important position it's a really like in some ways it, you, you get put on a pedestal because that position of being a judge and you have a lot of power you really do and and I appreciate the fact that you know you think everybody's just trying to do their best I don't know know if I agree with you but we'll leave that out to the side I'll, I'll say something about that though but you know not if at a minimum the judge isn't reading the papers and I remember as a lawyer there were some judges I would appear in front of, and it was obvious to me that they hadn't read my stuff and really thought about it. And then if they're not doing that, they're not doing their best. Yeah. Sometimes it feels that way, right? Like it just feels like, wait, did you even read what I put into these papers that I spent like, you know, so much time on? Um, and even when I'm arguing, I'm like, are you listening to what I'm telling you? But yeah. So anyway. And, so, and that's how, you know, that's how as a judge, you convey to the parties that Okay, you may not, you know, you may rule against them, but you saw them, you heard them. Really listen is by, you know, your demeanor, your temperament, how how you say things, what you say conveys to the parties. You know, I, I read your briefs. I read everybody's briefs. I did the research. I've considered these issues and I just disagree. You know, I, I believe X, you know, and, and it may be against you. And it doesn't mean that it's going to take the sting out of you telling your client, you know, you're the, the judge essentially threw your case out. You're not going to have your day in court, but this is why, but you know, I also understand that there, you know, there are generally close calls. And and sometimes when I see something, I'm like, well, I don't agree, but I can see the reasoning behind that. Um, But sometimes you get rulings where it's like, wait, that's not even even accurate, you know, like, um, but anyway, I am still bitter. I mean, this just happened a couple of days ago. I'll say this though, you know, judges and me included when I was on the trial court, we get the law wrong. Um, We get the law wrong. And and then the court of appeals not going to give any deference to that judge if it's an issue of law, right? And then, and you know, there are times when trial judges abuse the discretion. But it's okay. I'm, I'm going to move on from my bitterness. Uh, it's just a lot, you know. I'm sure you know because before you got on the bench, you were a litigator. You practiced civil law, right? That's what you did. Yes, and uh, not so you feel, you don't feel so like not to suggest that you feel bad about being better. But I remember having a huge case thrown out on summary judgment. And uh, I filed a motion for reconsideration, and I, I got the sense that it was a, with a different judge because the initial judge was on vacation or something. And uh, I got the sense from this from judge number two that they had not read my stuff. And this judge essentially said, "You know, take it to the court of appeal." And I did, but that whole process took years and a lot of money. Um, and you know, the court of appeal ended up reversing the trial judge, and it was a guy. Actually, the the case ended up resolving much more favorably. After seven years, and it would have had it the judge not throughout the case. Um, but you know, that's uh, at least you know, that's why we have courts of review, right? Is because judges get it wrong, and yeah, but just you know, but it takes time and it takes money and resources. And you know, I, I represented folks who didn't, you know, they couldn't pay for a lawyer, they couldn't, yeah. they didn't have the money to advance, they couldn't pay for a filing fee to even file to get into the courtroom. And you know, I, that's that's hard. And 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 one thing I, I, 
was so that I pressed upon me more when I was a trial judge was the lack of the number of folks who are outside of employment law, because that's what I focused on, that need lawyers, but they can't afford a yeah. lawyer. And then they're trying to do they're they're competing, you know, they're trying to get their day in court doing the best that they can, but they don't have legal training. They're up against parties that can afford lawyers. These are people representing themselves. Yes, representing themselves. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, yeah, that's tough. No, it's it's tough. You know, it's it's tough to find the right lawyer. It's tough to find a lawyer. The system is, you know, it's it's not an easy system. I always tell people when they come to me and they want to sue, people always tell them, like, just want you to know what you're getting yourself into. It's not lawsuits are not easy. They're not fun. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of resources. They take a lot of money, you know, and, and sometimes you don't win. Yeah. Well, that's a downer. All right. So you and you have your own office too, right? Because I remember co-counseling cases with you. I did. Yes. How long did you have your office? We had it for about eight years and could have, it was wonderful. Yeah. But I felt pulled to public service after 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And Arnaldo, what do you, do you have um, higher aspirations? I feel so fortunate to do what I get to do. It's about the law. It's about people and, you know, bringing my perspectives to decision-making so we can make better, we can have better decisions on our panels. Uh, my colleagues bring, you know, their diverse experiences to the court and their worldview and their values. And of course we apply the law to the cases, but there's gray area in the law and um, to raise questions that maybe wouldn't have been raised before. And then also just, I think, a role model to, to folks that, you know, this is what civil discourse looks like. Did you have to interview with Governor Newsom before he appointed you? No, never met him. I interviewed with his appointment secretary mm-hmm. and his, at the time, deputy appointment secretary. I know the process to, when you apply for the Superior Court trial judge is really extensive. Like, I think you said it took you seven months, which was on the shorter. Yes. It Like, you really do have to, like, submit, like, your entire life. Pretty much. I, yeah, I remember... Before I applied to the trial court, when I was starting to think about it, and I remember looking at the application, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to, I can't even fill this out. You know, they want to know about all these cases I worked on. They want to, everywhere I've worked at, everybody who supervised me, you have to write these essays, and respond to essay questions that are really hard, that really go, you need to do a lot of soul searching, what you want to do this. I mean, I think the application had like 80 questions or close to 100 or something like that. But once you submit, and this, the process is very similar for trial court and court of appeal. You submit this application to the governor's office and, and, you know, it takes months to put this thing together. And you do have to pour your whole self and your life into these applications and provide writing samples. So the governor gets your application and if they think that you have some potential, then they send your application to a a local vetting committee that's Mm -hmm. called the Judicial Selection Advisory Committee. And these folks then reviewed your application and they call a bunch of people to find out, hey, you know, tell me about Arnaldo, you know, tell me about his work ethic. Is Does he have integrity? What do you think about his work product? How was he in court? And it's all anonymous. So they can badmouth you, but they give, you know, they give these folks the good, the bad, and the ugly. These folks then will give a rating to the governor, a recommended rating, and they, they will recommend whether this person should then go on to the next phase of being vetted statewide. So if you get past JSAC with a, with a recommendation, yes, this person should be vetted statewide, you are vetted by the Judicial Nominees Evaluation Commission, which is a nonpartisan group that about, I think is comprised of 26 people, lawyers, people from the community that are not lawyers. Yeah. And they then vet you statewide. And that what that means to vet you statewide is that they send hundreds or thousands of these confidential questionnaires to people via email. 
asking them to to get your information about again yeah. your intelligence, your work end ethic, your industry, your demeanor, your temperament, and they get those questionnaires back and you interview with them. And you know they ask you about your application, about anything in your application, about your writing samples, about negative things that people said during the confidential questionnaire piece of it. It lasts two to three hours. Wow. And after that, they, then the Jenny, they will give a rating and a report to the governor. You, you're not told what your rating is, by the way. They don't, they don't tell you if, if they rated you exceptionally well-qualified or well-qualified or qualified or not qualified. In fact, you're kept in the dark throughout this whole process. You know, no one's telling you like, oh, you're at this phase or we talked to so-and-so. It's, it's all very, they keep it on the down low. So governor gets this report and rating from Jenny and then they decide or the governor decides and is whether they, they want to interview you. And still another interview, another interview that lasts, you know, it can last two hours for trial court. I think mine lasted about an hour, but it felt like four hours. Yeah. <laughs> it was super intense court of appeal. Uh, and then my interview with the governor's office for court of appeal was about two hours. And in the meantime, you know, they are making even more calls to people. Cause I remember getting, you know, a friend of mine would call me and say, Hey, you know, so-and-so called me and you know, they're, they're, they're doing their due diligence. After you interview with the, the governor's office for me, what happened was I got a call like two or three months later from the appointment secretary telling me that I had been appointed to the superior court. That's then it, that's pretty much it. You know, for a court of appeals, you get another, you get a similar call from the appointment secretary. And in this case, he, he'll tell you, okay, you've been nominated by Governor Newsom, but this is all subject to having a hearing with the Commission on Judicial Appointments, where you're going to have a public hearing in front of the Chief Justice, the Attorney General, and the most tenured or the longest serving Court of Appeal Justice in your district. So then you have this hearing and you get a huge packet of like your whole application and the hearing's public. So anybody who wants to go voice their opposition Mm. to your confirmation, they can show up. Um, I didn't have anybody show up for mine, thankfully. And you have to provide also two or three speakers who who are going to speak on your behalf. Right. So I had three people who spoke on my behalf. And then you speak, you give a short statement and, and the commission, they ask you questions that you don't know what they are before, you know, beforehand. Yeah. It's kind of nerve wracking. They ask you questions, you answer them, and then they vote right then and there. You got to get at least two out of the three right. to vote for you. And if two, at least two vote, you're confirmed, you're sworn in, and you're off and then you're you're off to the races. You're off to the races, so to speak. I haven't heard um, in such detail what the process is like. I, I know it to be extremely extensive, and like you really have to submit a lot of like a lot about your life and your work. And I also know like that I once in a while receive like emails about candidates and whether I know them and if I have anything to say about them. But the whole process and the extensiveness of it is really a testament to, you know, just how important the judge position is, right? Like, so you just want to make sure that you're putting the qualified people into those positions and vetted people, people who have, who don't have like, you know, all these complaints about them from their colleagues. Right. Yeah. So do I have other aspirations? No, I wouldn't want to go through that again. And honestly, I, I'm just really happy where I am. Do you love it or not though? Do you love being a judge? Do you love the court of appeal? I do love it. I do miss the day-to-day with the lawyer sometimes. And I did a lot of collaborative court work as a trial judge. I, I helped create and grow programs for folks that are involved in the criminal justice system and, and diverting them away from jail and prisoning and, and prison and getting them the help that they need to deal with substance abuse, with homelessness, with, with trauma. And that was very rewarding. Re- yeah, rewarding and just I really felt like I was making a huge difference and it's just so inspiring. So I, I miss that. And 
as isolated as I was as a trogist, I'm even more isolated now. But I love, I get case, you know, I get I, every area of law, you know, within civil, there's probate, there's trust, there's a lot of criminal law cases, there's there's family law cases, there's class actions, there's, there's employment, there's product liability, there's CEQA. Uh, I mean, everything. We get we get everything. What is CEQA? Uh, the California, California Environmental Quality. Ah, you get to, well, you have to make decisions in cases across the board. Across the board. Yeah, I can see why that 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 can be, you know, challenging, but also like it's interesting to learn about different areas of the law, I'm sure. Yes. I know that like as an employment lawyer, I mean, I, I just do employment law, but what I always am fascinated by, because depending on my client, I get to learn about their own job and their own little industry. And I get to learn more and more about, you know, I get to, I have to dive into that particular job and learn about that particular area. So be it a police officer or a hairdresser, I you know, I have to learn some about their job and their, their industry. So it's always really fascinating to learn these new things. Definitely in our profession, we you're always learning. Yeah, always learning. You have to. And now I'm a generalist, but you're but you're wearing the black robe, and everybody thinks that you're an expert and everything you know and everything, and you don't. <laughs> it's very humbling. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, Arnaldo, we're reaching the end of our recording here, and I can't let you go without talking about my favorite thing ever, food. And I know you mentioned earlier that your parents used to take you a particular plate. What was it? Trays of gallo pinto. Gallo pinto. What is gallo pinto? There are fried, you know, they were usually like these red beans. They were, my mom would, they would boil them they would, and then peel them meticulously. And they would then fry them with onion and garlic and you fry it with rice. Mm. And it's a dish that, you know, in Nicaragua, the wealthiest person and the poorest person eats gallo pinto. I mean, that's like the common denominator. And that's what, like the glue that holds the country together. Right. And, and growing up, Sandra, I mean, I would eat that every day. Really? Yeah. And is there chicken in it? No, it's just beans and rice. Oh, really? Yeah. And I liked eating it with sour cream and with like different types of cheeses. So you know, like fried cheese or like a crumbly cheese. I don't. I forget in the names because I don't really eat that stuff that much anymore. Erica learned how to make it. She makes a really good gallo pinto. But my father used to make a good one, but he passed away. My mom still makes it, and when she visits, when we see her, she she insists on making it. But yeah, I mean, I could eat gallo pinto still every day, and with tortillas. But and you eat it, you know, you can eat it for breakfast with like scrambled eggs or egg medium. It's very versatile. You can have it for lunch with carne asada. You can have it for dinner again with like fried plantains, and carne asada, or like you know barbecue chicken. I mean, you can eat it. Right. I could eat it every day. It's a staple. It, it is amazing. It's so good. So simple. And I know you're from Nicaragua, but you're also from California. Yes. So do you have three favorite tacos that you like to eat? I love fish tacos. Fish tacos with like uh, fried fish, battered fried fish. The, yes. With yes. like the little mango salsa and yeah, the cabbage. Maybe a little coleslaw. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I love that. You can't go wrong with, you know, carne asada tacos. Yeah. And... Pollo pinto, pollo, pollo pollo pinto. Gallo pinto. Gallo pinto taco. You've never had gallo pinto before, Sandra? I've never had, I've never even heard of it. Gallo pinto. Are there good tacos in San Luis Obispo? I know you lived in LA for a long time. You lived in the valley, right? And in Ventura. It's a beautiful area, though. It's a beautiful area. I had a case when when I started at Hatso and Stormer. I represented a woman who was who lived in San Luis Obispo, and my first year out, they sent me to her 
deposition with a really seasoned attorney. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I did spend time in San Luis Obispo. So that was nice. I mean, that was a long time ago. Do you remember what restaurants you ate at? No. No. I think I said, no, I don't. But I don't remember having any tacos there. Yeah. You know, usually when I have have Mexican food here in slow, I end up having like enchiladas or a burrito. Tacos, not, I, I, I get, I have those in Ventura or when I go to LA or Pasadena. Yeah. Well, we used to go to Quintaco all the time. Remember when we worked at yes. House of Dermer? That Quintaco opened out there in Pasadena. Whenever we're passing through Pasadena, when I say we, my spouse and my and our two kids, we go to Quintaco, they love it. Do they? Yeah, we did an RV trip a few years ago. Actually, a couple years ago, we went to Utah in an RV, and it was like 105 degrees in Pasadena near our old office. And I found parking for this 25-foot RV, and we went to King Taco on our way to... We were driving to, like, Bay. Parking for an RV in Pasadena? I did, and it was... They loved, they loved it. They, they loved King Taco. I wish we had a King Taco here in San Luis. They would make They would make a killing, you know, with the college folks here, with Cal Poly. King Taco should listen to this podcast. We talk about it all the time. Um, let me ask you, though, because I don't remember. Are you red or green salsa at King Taco? Green. Green, right, yeah. Yeah, the red is too too spicy for me. As I'm getting older, I can't handle that heat. Man, that is like my biggest fear in life that I won't be able to handle uh, heat as I get older. It hasn't happened to me yet, so knock on wood. Well, Arnaldo, it has been such an honor to have you on. I really, really appreciate you agreeing to be a guest on my little podcast. I think you're awesome. And, you know, you should know, Arnaldo, you are the first male guest. Oh, my gosh. I am honored that you had me as your first male guest. Uh, A real, real privilege to be here with you. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast and you're thinking, hey, I think I need to speak to a lawyer, you should get in touch with me. You can do that by going to scmlawoffices.com and sending me a message there. If you're not ready to do that, definitely say hi anyway. You can connect with me on Twitter at SEM underscore in underscore ELA. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode.